Thank you very much. And you're all very welcome uh, to uh, this webinar hosted by the Whitter uh, Institute at NUI Galway. And we're very pleased to welcome Sharon Donnery, who's the Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. Uh, and um, my name is Kieran O'Hogadim, President of NUI Galway. Uh, and just to introduce Sharon briefly and maybe uh, say a few introductory remarks. Uh, Sharon was appointed Deputy Governor of Central Banking on the 1st of March 2016 has significant experience in, in this area, was, uh, uh, is an ex-officio member of the Central Bank Commission, the Governor's Alternate on the Governing Council of the European Central Bank, the ECB, and her primary responsibility, which you talk about uh, more today, is leading the financial stability uh, element of the, of the uh, Central Bank's um, directorate, including economic statistics and financial operations. Uh, and she's also chair of the ECB Budget Committee, having been appointed by the ECB Governing Board, Governing Council in December 2016. She was acting governor of the Central Bank in from the 1st of June 2019 to the 31st of August 2019, previously member of the European Systemic Risk Board and alternative member of the Supervisory Board of the Single Supervisory Mechanism. Uh, significant experience not only in Ireland but internationally, has chaired a number of European committees, including being chair of the ECB High Level Group on Non-Performing Loans, Chair of the European Banking Authority's Consumer Protection Group and Vice Chair of the EBA Standard Committee on Consumer Protection and Financial Innovation. And not only experience in central banking and internationally, but also uh, over a long number of years has experience in uh, as an economist with both the Monetary Policy Division of the Central Bank, uh, but also she held the statutory position of Registrar of Credit Unions from February 2013 to 20, August 2014 and from April 2014 to May 2016 was Director of Credit Institutions and has academic experience as well because prior to joining the Central Bank, she lectured in economics at uh, what is now Maynooth University and now holds an adjunct Professor of Economics role in Trinity College, has been economics and politics and then economics from UCD and a diploma from uh, in company direction from the Institute of Directors. So particularly pleased to, to welcome uh, Sharon to virtually to NUI Galway, particularly pleased to uh, reinforce our relationship with the central bank and the role of public policy in particular uh, at NUI Galway and our, the importance we we we, uh, we we put on it. And um, when we launched our strategy last year, we we said a number of things which I think are important in this context. First of all, that we are a we are a university for the public good. And the extent to which both institutions contribute to the public good, I think, is is significant. Uh, I think what came, one thing that came out of the financial crisis for sure is the importance of a, a sound uh, financial system and a sound banking system and sound public policy. So I'm, I'm an accountant by background and very often we see accounting and economics as technical subjects, which they are, but they also have a pr profound impact on, on public policy and on society and on individuals uh, within society. And I think this is a particularly important role that the central bank plays uh, right now. Uh, particularly in the context of, of stability in very uncertain times. So as we know, uh, COVID-19 has given us a particularly uncertain period, uh, both currently and ahead, and uh, the role of financial stability in that context particularly significant. The role also in supporting the recovery, uh, and more and more, as, as we'll uh, see mentioned in the talk, it, 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 there's evidence of a K-shaped recovery, uh, and challenges for how the, the COVID uh, pandemic has affected different parts of society, different parts of the economy, different parts of the banking system uh, differently. And I think that's uh, also uh, important for us. And more and more, we know that decisions we make as uh, in, in the financial system, in accounting, in my own area, they make a difference to individuals. And very often decisions that we take, which we think seem logical, 
uh, actually have profound impact on, on individuals within society as well. And I think that's a particularly important uh, role that the central bank has played uh, more recently, which, which is uh, th that, that broader perspective on areas like the economy more generally, the impact on climate change, for example, of, of financial systems, uh, and uh, the importance of culture within financial institutions. And very often we find ourselves thinking, how did somebody think that was uh, the right thing to do? Uh, and all of that is a lot of that is down to culture, which again, the central bank has a particular role to play in that context. So particularly pleased to welcome uh, Sharon, particularly pleased to welcome her to, as I say, virtually to anywhere Galway, but also particularly pleased to support the, the role of the central bank uh, in, in all of those aspects that it plays in, in uh, creating and supporting a sound financial system and a sound banking system, which, as I've said, is particularly important to us uh, currently and as we uh, plan for the future. Um, also, I'd like to welcome all our students. Um, this is a webinar, so you'll have the opportunity to participate. There is a Q&A function on the platform that you're uh, encouraged to use uh, during the talk. And obviously at the end then, uh, Sharon will have the opportunity maybe to address uh, some of those with, with some other panel members as well. So, uh, they didn't come to listen to me in particular, so I'll stop now and uh, just welcome Sharon Donnery and uh, say thank you very much uh, for joining us and we look forward to your talk and thank you very much for the work you do with your colleagues uh, on behalf of the banking, the, the financial and banking system more generally, but for society and as is anyway Galway for the public good. Green Margaret, thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, President, first of all, for having me this afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be able to join you, if only virtually. And of course, we, we'd love to be there with you. But I'm joined also by a number of my colleagues this afternoon. And we really appreciate um, your kind words about the work that we do. Um, as you said, uh, very much grounded in public policy and therefore have a uh, very significant overlap with yourselves in terms of uh, your objectives. Uh, and of course, everything that we do uh, done in the public interest. Um, so really, uh, a pleasure to be with you uh, and particularly grateful for those uh, kind words, uh, which also I think gave uh, some sort of overview of some of the things that I'm going to uh, talk about today. Um, so good afternoon to everybody who's joined us as well. Um, it's really nice uh, to be here. And as the president said, um, I look forward to maybe having a chance to answer some questions or have some uh, discussion with you um, after my remarks, uh, which are obviously going to be very heavily focused on the uh, effects of the pandemic for today. So um, it's over a year now, as we all know, uh, since COVID-19 epidemiology and Zoom became staples in our conversations, but also our routines and our day to day. And we've seen how the pandemic has had a devastating effect on lives, livelihoods and our lifestyles. In economic terms, we've seen the worst peacetime global contraction since the Great Depression. And while the world economy is expected to grow by about 5.6% in 2020, according to the latest projections we have, due to the partial nature of the rebound, over 150 economies around the world are expected to have per capita incomes below their 2019 levels in 2021. Now, if we can pull up the slides, hopefully that will work, um, and turn to slide two, uh, you'll see that a striking feature of the pandemic in Ireland has been that gross domestic product actually grew by 3.4% in 2020. So this is on this chart here. And this growth in Ireland is in stark contrast globally and to the other European countries that you can see on the slide. Now, these GDP growth figures point to a strong export performance essentially in 2020 due to multinational dominated pharmaceuticals and computing services. However, the issues of using GDP to measure economic activity in Ireland are well known and aggregate economic statistics can really only provide a high level overview of how the economy is performing. And this GDP growth in particular masks a large fall of 
about 5.4% in domestic demand, reflecting the devastating impact of the pandemic on underlying domestic activity. And consumption in particular in Ireland was down by about 9% in 2020, which you can also see on this slide. Now, looking beyond the aggregate numbers, we saw last year how while almost half of workers had their incomes directly supported by the state at one point, thousands of farms were shuttered for most of the year, and yet household savings increased by the largest amount ever. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the effects of the pandemic on employment, on income and on savings, and the importance of looking beyond these aggregate numbers so that we understand the full effects. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the role that employment and income support policies have played in mitigating the worst of the crisis and the importance of understanding these different effects of the pandemic as policymakers start shaping our plans for economic recovery. The worst effects of the crisis have been mitigated by exceptional countercyclical policies. And today, domestic and international, fiscal and monetary, macro and micro prudential policies are all positively reinforcing each other, including across borders. And these significant actions of governments and of central banks have been really critical to stabilise our economies. Janet Yellen, United States Secretary of the Treasury, spoke recently about the extensive pandemic supports for workers, households and firms, and she described them as a bridge to the end of the pandemic. And we need to now start thinking about what is on the other side of that bridge. Now, at the peak of early May 2020, over 1.2 million people were being supported by the state for their incomes, almost half the labour force, and that number today is 953,000. And while sobering in their own right, the aggregate COVID-19 adjusted unemployment numbers only really tell a partial story and the pandemic has affected some workers more than others. So if we turn to slide three, we'll see that the impact by region, scale, gender, age or incomes really differ, reflecting the concentration of these different groups in the sectors that have been subject to varying levels of the necessary health restrictions. Now, speaking here at NUIG, many of you will no doubt be aware of some of the regional effects associated with the challenges faced by consumer-facing sectors, particularly those like tourism and accommodation. And understanding the effects of the pandemic on employment requires very careful consideration. One way is to look at the percentage of workers that were absent from work due to COVID-19 measures, and we can see this on the next slide. Younger, female and less educated groups all stand out as coming off worse in the pandemic when we look at groups that say they were away from work for COVID-19 reasons. I think we're one slide ahead actually, sorry, I think we should be on slide four. Yeah, thanks. Um, yo uh, younger, female and less educated groups, as I said, stand out as coming off worse in the pandemic when we look at groups that say they're away from work for COVID-19 reasons. And looking across education levels, those with primary or secondary education were almost twice as likely to be away from work as those with a third level education in quarter two 2020. Younger workers were also severely affected while almost half the workforce under 25 out of work due to COVID-19 in the first wave of health restrictions in quarter two last year. The female and male difference is also evident and interesting when we consider that in previous downturns, we've tended to see the opposite pattern, which is that considerably fewer females have lost their jobs relative to males. Now, throughout the year, as restrictions were eased, many returned to work, and it was often to a situation where their wages were subsidised by the state. This was especially so for younger and female workers. The importance of supports for firm liquidities have also been highlighted for SME finances in particular. So what I've presented here is really a picture of uneven labour 
market impacts from the pandemic, where the young females and those with lower education levels have been particularly affected. Being out of work for long periods can discourage workers and can lead to them dropping out of the labour force. This is important to keep in mind as we emerge from the pandemic for individual welfare, but also for long-term distributional effects and future economic growth prospects. Now, turning from employment effects, I want to discuss a little bit how household incomes had fared as a result of the pandemic. While the employment effects have been uneven, the income effects have been significantly moderated by the introduction of COVID support policies. The two main income supports, the pandemic unemployment payment and the wage subsidies, have been hugely important in supporting incomes for different households. So that in the second quarter of 2020, gross household incomes fell by 1.7% at the median. Whereas recent estimates suggest that without those supports, income would have fallen by about 20%. And you can see that on the next slide. In addition, the research finds that income supports have helped reduce the potential for the pandemic to lead to greater income inequality during 2020. And perhaps not surprisingly, the take-up of supports is concentrated among lower earners. And you can see that on the next slide. However, across households, the take-up is spread more evenly in high and low income households. And this reflects the fact that some higher income households also have lower earning individuals within the household. So younger, lower income renters and single parents, over 90% of whom are women, all rely heavily on the pandemic income supports. And debt supports have also helped to keep debt repayments at sustainable levels. And you can see that on the next slide. As I've outlined, while the effects on employment have been uneven, the state supports have meant that the effect on incomes have been considerably moderated. And the counter-cyclical income and SME support policies have meant that we have not seen an increase in inequality, as may have been the case otherwise. Now, while many people have lost their jobs and the income of many thousands more have been supported by the state, others have been saving. And the imposition of the necessary health restrictions have been associated with a significant fall in consumption, as I said, of around 9% in 2020. This large fall, combined with incomes holding up in 2020, has led to an unprecedented increase in savings. And estimates of this excess or pandemic savings are in the order of about 12% of disposable income, which we can see on slide nine, if you want to move ahead to number nine, thanks. Policymakers are giving a lot of thought to how these savings might be used in the future. If, how and on what they are spent will be important for domestic demand, jobs and inflation. So it's important to first understand if people are saving more in order to build a rainy day fund. If they're saving out of precaution, for example, if they're worried about their future income. In this case, people are less likely to spend their increased savings, but to hold on to them. Research suggests that in these circumstances, only about 5% of the extra savings may be spent on consumption in the economy. If, however, the savings are being accumulated because people can't spend their income due to the restrictions that are in place, or what we might call deferred spending, the savings may ultimately be viewed as extra income. And in this instance, research suggests that roughly half of the savings may be spent or consumed, which would suggest a boost to domestic demand. It also matters, of course, who spends and saves, because evidence suggests that higher income households spend more in the restricted sectors, which suggests more of the excess savings concentrated in higher income households. The latest analysis suggests that the pandemic savings are more likely to be deferred spending rather than precautionary in nature. And similar patterns to this are observed in other countries, including those where the vaccine rollout is further along. 
This suggests that the additional spending effects from the pandemic deposit savings to date could be in the order of about 5 billion euro, or roughly 5% of the aggregate consumption for 2019. So the question then becomes on what and when might they be spent, because this is really important for economic growth. Spending on domestically produced goods or services adds more to growth than spending on goods or services which have a high import content, for example. Many of the restricted opportunities to spend in terms of the spending share not only have a high import content, such as foreign travel, household furnishings or durables, clothing and vehicles, but they're also more easily deferred and therefore easier to make up later. A scenario where about half of pandemic savings are spent would still leave substantial amounts of savings for other purposes. So where might these savings end up and what would be the implications? One channel is through deposits for home purchases, and this could have implications for house prices. Similarly, if the savings are used for home improvements, an increase in demand could divert resources, both workers and inputs, away from already much needed housing supply. Indeed, some of the savings may be kept as savings and used to purchase financial assets or to pay down debt, although recent evidence does not suggest a large role for debt pay down so far. At this stage, with so much uncertainty around both the health and economic developments, it's simply not possible to provide a time frame on when these savings might be unwound and exactly what they might be spent on. However, both the special savings incentive accounts, the so-called SSIAs, and post-World War II experience with savings suggests that any boost to spending will likely play out over several years. So today I've set out the effects of the pandemic on employment and how the labour market impact has differed by age and gender and skill level. And further, despite the severe income losses, this has not been reflected in widespread income shocks as the state supports have played a significant role. Simultaneously to that, household savings have reached an all-time high, reflective of the different effects that the shock has had. So now I'll turn to some of the key related policy questions faced as we look at the next phase or as we start to move across the bridge to the other side of the pandemic. Pandemic labour market policy so far has focused on preventing job destruction through wage subsidies and a wide range of other liquidity supports for firms. And where jobs have been lost, they focused on income preservation. But we also need to be thinking about labour market policy for the recovery when it comes. Unfortunately, job losses and firm closures as a result of the pandemic are likely. And we know that younger, lower educated, lower paid and female workers are more likely to make up many of these newly unemployed. Further, we know that there can be wage penalties for those entering employment after a crisis. So a broad range of labour market policies, including training, hiring subsidies and employment activation programs that help provide a pathway to viable and rewarding employment will be important considerations as the economy recovers. A number of active labour market programs are available, many of which were developed in response to the rise of unemployment during the last recession. We should not, however, underestimate the scale of the task. In the context of the COVID-19 shock, three other issues come to mind in relation to labour market implications and potential policy considerations. The first is the degree of inactivity as a result of the pandemic. If people are discouraged and they move out of the labour force, this could have long-term distributional consequences. The second issue relates to the possibilities of workers switching across sectors. If demand falls for workers in one sector, can other sectors offer employment opportunities? 
A third issue relates to the potential effects of COVID-19 on gender gaps in employment and wages. While much progress has been made in recent decades, there is more to do. And it's imperative that any structural changes in how we work do not impact on women's long run labour market outcomes. Needless to say, the implications for the labour market are, of course, closely linked to the future of firms. Pandemic related financial distress in the SME sector has not yet translated to a rise in insolvencies or closures due to the extraordinary levels of forbearance and other supports that are available to these firms. A delicate policy trade off presents itself for the rest of this year and into 2022. If traditional insolvency triggers are implemented rapidly, we risk many long term viable yet currently distressed companies being liquidated, which may increase long term scarring effects in the economy. On the other hand, though, perpetual forbearance and unlimited support to all distressed SMEs would also damage the economy through the inefficient allocation of capital. Given the current levels of uncertainty around future demand in many business sectors, it seems that for the moment, a continuation of the current policies are appropriate until such time as economic normalisation has occurred. At that point, when companies have had a chance to trade and traditional financial signals become more meaningful, it will be imperative that our systems function smoothly so that restructuring of viable businesses can occur and they can contribute to employment and growth of the economy. At that stage, though, unfortunately, it will also be evident that some firms will not survive. And in that instance, it's important that impediments to liquidation are eased so that liquidation of the least viable businesses is also possible, thereby giving business people and entrepreneurs the opportunity of a fresh start. As we chart a course out of this crisis, it will be important to consider these challenges to minimise the long term distributional consequences. As I've said, the policy supports to date have been extensive and have mitigated the worst effects of the crisis. Policy support will need to be maintained over the short term in order to stabilise the economy. And as the economy reopens, any ongoing current expenditure should be targeted in particular at getting people back to work, as I've outlined earlier, and temporary. The continued sustainability of the public finances is critical to avoid limiting the scope to respond to future crises. Furthermore, the unwinding of savings will also likely provide a stimulus as the economy reopens. And while the extent is unknown, estimates suggest that it could equate to up to 5% of consumption levels in 2019. Finally, let me conclude. Today, when we think of the bridge to the other side, virtually here at the Whitaker Centre, it's apt to reflect on TK Whitaker, the senior public servant and the former central bank governor, often referred to as the architect of modern Ireland. A policymaker respected for his ability to think strategically with a long-term vision, as opposed to only looking at the short term. And as we emerge from the current crisis, we must consider the long-term implications of the pandemic and our policy actions. We must look beyond the aggregates to consider the effects of the pandemic across different sectors and groups in our society, so together we can work to minimise potential costly and damaging scarring effects. Thank you again for the kind invitation for your uh, attention this afternoon, and I really look forward to your questions. I'll stop there, President. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, we have a Q&A uh, button here which has some questions, so would we start with those? Um, there's a, a, and I think that's that's when we mentioned earlier the banking and financial opportunity impact to the current situation. How are they impacted, and what future prospects you can then see as they as for students graduating in the fall of 2021. So, 
banking and financial opportunities, particularly as careers and how they might change. I think it's the first question. I think we've then some panel members to join as well. So. Okay, thanks. I'll start with that. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think we've been saying at the central bank over the last number of years that the banking and financial system is changing quite significantly in any event, yeah, even before the, the pandemic. Um, so one significant change that there has been in the financial system in the Eurozone has been um, as a result of Brexit, where a number of firms that used to be located in the UK have moved to other parts of the Eurozone, for example. Uh, but the other significant effect has been around uh, digitalization or, or fintech, so-called financial technology, and the moves by many firms. Uh, and in fact, not only existing firms, but also new entrants in into new types of uh, financial products and services um, as they are becoming more innovative. So they're probably the sort of two big trends. I think COVID has obviously really accelerated even more um, our dependence on digitalization and our interaction in terms of doing business in that way. Um, so I think for the future, uh, many of the financial services firms will also be moving more uh, in that direction. And it's an area, I think, also of significant growth of new firms, new entrants, offering new uh, types of products and particularly new interfaces uh, with customers. Um, but I think in general, I mean, Ireland has a very significant uh, financial centre uh, based here. It's obviously a very big part of our responsibility here at the central bank uh, to regulate that. And there are many thousands of people working in the, the financial services industry. Uh, so I think for people who are working in, in any of these uh, sort of areas, whether it's finance, accounting, uh, even in, in economics, um, as many of us on the call who are here with you today are, uh, you know, there are, are good prospects uh, in the future in terms of uh, the potential for job opportunities, for sure. sure. Um, the question from Kinjami is uh, good one asking about um, whether uh, there should be incentives for savers to put their money or invest the money or spend the money in certain ways, for example, into, into new green technology or, or retrofitting the homes and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think this is one thing that needs to be uh, considered uh, carefully, I suppose, as I was exploring in the speech. Uh, first of all, we have to remember that there are certain groups that have more of those savings and certain other groups who obviously haven't been saving. So there are, are big distributional effects first. Um, so even if there were incentives provided, they would only apply uh, to some uh, particular cohorts uh, or groups of, of people. I mean, if incentives are provided, I think then it's important to think about how are they going to feed through to the economy? So are they going to add to demand on things where where there's going to be natural demand in any event. Uh, the example I gave um, in my remarks around housing, for example, where, of course, it would be um, important to think about greening and we're all doing a lot more work on climate change. And I know the government has its, its new uh, climate change policy. But if you simply add more to demand that's already there, um, it's not necessarily as effective as it could be. So I think the key is that, you know, these issues need to be considered um, in policy design. I think the other thing um, people have asked me about um, in other fora has been about you know, sort of particularly in the context of a low interest uh, rate environment where if you have your savings um, at the bank, you may not be earning very much interest on them. You know, should people be encouraged to invest these savings in other products? And I think there, again, people need to be very uh, clear in terms of understanding what the risks and returns uh, for any investment products would be and that if they're going into any of those, um, that, that will be considered carefully. So again, if, if you were looking at investment type uh, incentives, for example, they would also have to be considered carefully and that people understand sort of what they're getting into and what the implications might be. Thanks, Sharon. And there's a couple of questions from you different students about inflation. And I guess they're, they're very carefully watching the debate in the United States, particularly Larry Summers and Paul Krugman and others. Uh, and um, Larry Summers are arguing about a very high risk of inflation really taking off. Um, and they're, they're asking whether, whether you see 
risks of that type of inflation research here in, in, in the euro area? Yeah, so there's, I mean, the debate about inflation, obviously, as you mentioned, in the context of the fiscal stimulus that's happened in the, the US, I think was prompted a big part of that debate. I would say there are other things maybe that are not so clear. So, uh, you know, students will be aware of the important role oil prices and energy prices, for example, play in inflation formation. Uh, and, uh, you know, there have been some different views there. Of course, we had a spike last weekend because of the incident in the Suez Canal. So all sorts of things can affect oil prices. And there are also, I suppose, unusual things going on in relation to global supply chains. I mean, Suez, the Suez uh, issue brought that home as well. But uh, you can see things happening like, you know, increasing in the cost of freight. Uh, you can see countries thinking more, I think, about supply chains, where they get goods from and whether they should be brought closer to home. We have these unusual things going on, as I was talking about in the economy, where some people um, could use savings uh, to, to increase demand substantially in the economy, which might put pressure on prices, uh, whereas other people have had uh, much less, lesser benefit uh, from savings. So I think many different things going on that make the path of inflation somewhat uncertain. Now, having said that, I think it's also there's a distinction, I think, between the US and the Eurozone. Um, a big part of the debate, as I mentioned, in the US has been about the significant fiscal stimulus. And of course, it's also the case that here in the Eurozone, many member states have had a significant uh, fiscal stimulus. And we do also have the sort of collective um, effort at European level um, in terms of uh, the fiscal response. Uh, but I think it's less clear if that will have as significant effects on the Eurozone economy as it may have um, in the, the US in terms of the inflation effects. So while all that's going on, I mean, we continue to work with colleagues at the ECB in terms of the measures that we've put in place to support the economy. And, and that ultimately means uh, aiming to return uh, to our inflation aim um, over the medium term. So some uncertainty, I would say, still in terms of how inflation may play out. You had a very interesting discussion of, of the unequal impact of the pandemic on, um, on people. Um, and a couple of several questions, come in, uh, particular on the unequalist, unequalist in terms of gender. Um, so, for example, I just gathered a few together, but, but they're asking, um, why do you think that women were more impacted by the COVID-19 crisis uh, compared to the previous financial crisis? And um, whether the, the, that impact, um, the unequal impact, well, whether that will be rectified as we go into the recovery. Yeah, so um, I suppose there are a couple of things going on. So one thing is the important role of construction. Now, I understand, obviously, that construction is closed at the moment. So that has a particular effect at the moment. But there were periods when the construction industry uh, was open. Um, and one of, obviously, going back to the financial crisis and particularly how it affected Ireland, uh, was very significant effects around the property and construction industry, uh, where employment tends to be more male dominated and so some of the effects in the financial crisis were very significant around that so that's part of, of what's going on and um, it's also to do with the other sectors that that female workers do work in it's also to do with part-time uh, so many female workers uh, still working part-time for example so the effects come I suppose from a number of different things including uh, the sectors where they work having been most badly uh, affected uh, by the pandemic and um, as I mentioned as well there are some particular effects I think I gave the example there around uh, single parents, for example, um, about 90% of single parents are women. So I suppose what we're saying there is, is looking forward, uh, the supports, depending on where they go, which sectors they end up in, may have differential effects on the genders of those that go back to work. If they're So for example, if construction reopens in the next 
couple of weeks, it tends to have more male workers than female workers. So you'd have male workers going back um, more quickly. And um, so it's about uh, effects uh, like that, but also about how policy might be designed in the future uh, to make sure that, you know, issues like childcare, for example, which is a very important part of, of female participation in the workforce are also considered. Now, I accept, of course, that that applies uh, to many men as well, but it tends to have stronger effects on, on female workers in the workforce. Thanks, Sharon. Um, an interesting question from Matthew saying that um, um, there are many students getting the pop and they're getting more money on the pop than they would have got when they were working. Is this a bad thing? It would have much impact on the economy. And related to that is, is the idea, you mentioned policy support. Um, in what ways do you, do you see the, the policy supports, uh, fiscal support changing as we, as we go through the recovery? Yeah, so I mean, the specific example of the PUP, I suppose, is a good example of what you were talking about there earlier about incentives. So, you know, how policy is designed, it is important how it then operates in the real world from an incentivization point of view. So I think there's an important message there in the story that that uh, student has told. Uh, but that's, I suppose, that that's really what I'm, I'm talking about as well um, in terms of going in, into the future. We have to think about um, how the policy design uh, that we make incentivizes people. And I think at the central bank, we've been very clear particularly that the fiscal support that has been provided like PUP like the wage support uh, schemes and other fiscal expenditure have been necessary the type of crisis that this is it really requires a very strong fiscal policy response we are obviously having a very strong monetary policy response as well but you need a strong fiscal response and um, but it's also important that it is uh, temporary and uh, targeted, I think was the word I actually used in my remarks. So that policy, these supports unwind over time in a carefully considered way, of course, depending on these different things like the sectoral effects uh, and so on. But also um, money spent on one thing means we don't spend money on something else when we're thinking about the public finances. And um, so we have to also make sure, I think, that any expenditure is really targeted towards the areas uh, where it will be be uh, the most effective. So viable firms, uh, for example, are supported to maintain their, their viability. And while, as I said, it's, it's very unfortunate, very difficult for the individuals that are involved, it is the case, I think, that some firms uh, will not make it through. They may, in fact, be firms who had difficulties even before the pandemic, which have now been exacerbated and made worse uh, by what's happened. Um, and difficult and all as it is, providing policy support to that type of firm um, is not really an effective use of resources that could be diverted elsewhere. Um, but as I said, I think an important aspect of that is that firms uh, can be liquidated and then obviously people have the opportunity to sort of, sort of start again. And I know that after the financial crisis, um, the president mentioned it um, when he was introducing me, I did a significant amount of work at European level um, on non-performing loans. And one of the crit really critical issues that arose there was around how firms can be restructured and, and liquidated and how firm-related debt uh, can be dealt with dealt with and we did a lot of work looking at different eurozone experiences of that and effective um, insolvency and liquidation um, structures and frameworks are a really important part of that. Um, Sharon there's a question from James Cahalan asking have you any thoughts on the housing market with many reports claiming that prices are set to surge? Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so obviously here at the bank, we do a significant amount of work around uh, the housing market, particularly in the context of, you know, what students will have heard about our, our so-called mortgage measures or our macro prudential rules. 
which limit the amount that people can borrow uh, to buy houses, thereby, of course, protecting those individuals, but also making the overall banking system more safe and more sound uh, from a public policy, public interest point of view, of course. Uh, so it's important to emphasize that. So uh, a bit like I was talking about the savings, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainties in the housing market um, at the moment due to many different things going on at once. So first of all, the construction sector is obviously uh, closed at the moment, and that is having an effect on supply. Um, and I think the bank had already said a number of times that we were very concerned about the sort of supply pipeline over the next number of years being able to meet demand. Uh, so that's one issue. And uh, we have these groups uh, that have these large deposits growing, which potentially could become deposits for housing and therefore put upward pressure on house prices at the same time as there's more limited supply. Uh, so that's another factor. But then the other factor is the sort of whole debate around the future of work. Um, you know, are people going to be based in cities in the future? Are more people going to sort of move to the suburbs outside of cities or even as was being discussed uh, yesterday in terms of the government announcement, uh, move to more rural parts of Ireland? And all of these things, of course, will interact uh, together to affect supply and demand and therefore interact uh, to affect housing prices. So we're careful at the bank uh, to uh, never forecast uh, house prices, but we do do a significant amount of work in trying to understand what's going on in the housing market. And we're obviously looking at it very carefully because we will have our uh, mortgage measures review, which we review annually in the autumn. Thanks, Sharon. Uh, the questions are, are, are fly, flying in, which is great. Yeah, I can see a very high number there. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm trying my best to, to keep up with them. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm struggling. Um, there was a, a question about um, the slower rollout of vaccines in Africa. This is way beyond the Irish economy, but vaccines is a global issue. And what, do you, what, what effect do you think the slower rollout of, of the vaccines outside of, outside of advanced countries will have on, on the global economy and on world trade? Yeah, so uh, I think I gave the number there at the beginning of the speech. I mean, we obviously talk a lot to the IMF and the World Bank as part of our, our role here. And I think it was about 150 countries that are expected um, in 2021 to have a lower per capita income um, than in 2019. So, I mean, very significant effects here, but uh, around the world. And I think one of the very challenging things about the pandemic has been that it's affected so many countries all at once. I mean, if you look at previous crises, uh, when wars happen or um, when significant natural disasters happen, even the way the global financial crisis happened, it evolved much more slowly um, and it affected many countries around the world, but not sort of the entire world in the same way. So we have this very significant shock uh, that's affecting uh, almost the entire world um, in a very similar way. I think the other thing that's interesting for us to think about is we are obviously a small open economy and I think it brings home to us just how globalized the world has become. So not just us and our dependence on the rest of the world and our trade, both our trade out and our trade in, but it's a really good reminder of just how um, interconnected the rest of the world is. Um, and so to get economic growth going, I think as has been said by many people who know an awful lot more about vaccines than I do, um, we can't really deal with the effects of the pandemic until the whole world is in a much safer place. So even though, for example, maybe our economy, the US economy, the eurozone will begin recovering hopefully later uh, this year and um, if other parts of the world remain in difficulty then that could remain um, a problem in terms of economic growth and particularly uh, global trade uh, for example so i think there are uh, still I, I suppose global concerns about um, when economic growth might return to other parts of the world 
there, um, there's a couple of questions on, um, about uh, relating to fiscal policy and, and whether austerity, as we saw before a decade ago, is, is inevitable in order to pay the bill for, for the crisis. Is, how, how do you see that? So first of all, I think the context is, is very different. Um, so we are dealing with a very, very different uh, type of crisis. And we're dealing with um, our own economy, but this is also true of many economies around the world, going into this crisis in a very different place to the place it was in when we went into the, the global financial crisis. Um, so the sort of starting point, I think, um, is very different. The other issue is many of the supports, which, as I said, we do at, at the bank think have been necessary. They are temporary. So, you know, of course, I'm saying they need to be temporary and targeted. And that's what we want to see in the policy design. But I mean, it's clear that many of them um, will have to be temporary and they're to deal with very specific issues uh, that arise at the moment. Um, and the government can, of course, uh, finance that um, and borrow on international markets at historically low interest rates. Now, that's, of course, partly to do with uh, quantitative easing and monetary policy, which is a, a whole separate issue, but uh, let's not just digress into that for the moment. So you have these sort of unusual context of very low interest rates, which makes it easier to borrow um, and more sustainable to borrow because you'll obviously be paying lower interest um, into the future. And a lot of the expenditure is temporary. Now, I think one area of concern is, uh, you know, if there were going to be a, a shift towards more permanent expenditure, and if you look back at the budget from last year, some of the expenditure uh, was of the more permanent uh, variety. And in that case, uh, that type of expenditure, we have to think carefully as a state how that's uh, going to be supported and financed either from taxation or whatever in, in terms of uh, the other side of the balance sheet. So I think we do just to be, have to be careful from that point of view. And the other key issue, I think, is that as I said, interest rates are at a historic low at the moment. Uh, that won't be the case forever. I don't think that's a shock news to anybody. And so when the government goes to refinance debt into the future, it's possible that it will be at, um, you know, certainly higher, if not significantly higher interest rates. And um, so while not an immediate issue for today in terms of debt sustainability, again, thinking about the longer term, I think we do have to re have regard uh, to making sure that that has been thought about and how that debt is going to be refinanced into the future is being planned for. One of the main reasons for saying that is I think we know that shocks happen to economies. Okay, if I think back just about the last 10 years, we had the global financial crisis, we've had Brexit, and now we've had this. But if you look back even longer over history, you know, there are crises and issues arise. So the resilience of the economy or its ability to sort of absorb shocks when they happen are really, really important. And from a government point of view, it's really important that the government is well positioned for future crises uh, that might may happen. And therefore, the debt has to be seen, I think, also in that light, that in 10, 15, 20 years time, the government may have to respond to another very significant shock. And then, you know, the debt has to be uh, sustainable to be able to do that. A couple of minutes left, and I really thanks for answering all those questions. There, it's really quick fire stuff, and we have a very large number of questions that came in. So, my apologies to the participants whose questions I, I won't get to. But a number of the students have asked um, a similar type of question. It's to do with um, because you spoke about sort of a new type of job markets or new job opportunities uh, in 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 post-pandemic world. We know that we're not going back to the same um, economy or world, at least exactly the same economy world that we had pre-pandemic. So they're asking about what sort of new jobs might come out or new sort of job opportunities you, you see uh, um, post-pandemic. So I think it's a little bit hard to predict, but as I was talking about the financial services industry, maybe is a good, it's an example of a kind of wider trend more towards this 
sort of world of analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, the role that technology, I think, will play um, in the work of the future. Again, if you look to history, of course, we've seen uh, shifts in terms of various types of sort of the industrial revolution and so on, which sort of changes the nature of work. Um, and, you know, from anything that I read or that we see here at the bank, it's really, uh, you know, jobs that rely on personal interaction in particular, jobs that require careful judgment and interpretation. Uh, I think this is particularly interesting for people maybe who are studying accounting, economics and so on, roles that require interpretation of data and so on that of course can be analyzed by computer and, and AI and things like that. Um, but it's more looking at those uh, kinds of skills. So I think thinking about the skills that are around sort of judgment, personal interaction, communication, uh, these kinds of things um, are going to be uh, very important um, into the future. Um, but I mean, it's an area I think that where as a said earlier talking about the financial services industry you see really sort of rapid change now also um, as a result of the pandemic as people reformulate or rethink about how they even think about work and how we work and where we work as well as everything else. Thank you Sharon we're just past our time for your talk so like I said I really appreciate it that was really fascinating maybe I, I could ask President Hogarty just to come back to the, the last few minutes but uh, just to wrap up but, uh, Sharon and my perspective thanks very much. Thank you all thanks. Very much, and, and thanks, Alan. Thanks, Sharon. That was uh, very informative, and I think particularly, I think uh, the nature of the evidence as we're emerging from, uh, hopefully, emerging from COVID. I, I think that's been a very good insight into how the economy is uh, restabilizing or re-emerging in the context of, of, as you say, the savings rate and and the potential for uh, and employment and unemployment and how it's affected the economy and different aspects of it differently. So. We've always, as, as a university, as a learning institution, we rely on the evidence and I think particularly uh, useful the, the evidence that you've uh, showed us here and we wish you the very best in the context of uh, grappling with the policies that, that make it an easier transition. So uh, thank you very much for, for, uh, for the uh, very interesting uh, uh, talk and also for addressing the, the, the questions, as Alan said, they're quick fire, but for addressing them with such, uh, such openness and uh, we welcome that as well. So, so thank you very much. We really appreciate your, your contribution today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and thanks again, especially to the students for asking so many uh, questions. Really interesting. Sorry I didn't get to more of them, um, but we, might, we may have another opportunity in the, in, in the future. We deeply appreciate the chance to be here. So thanks again.